Dear Lord, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that you've revealed yourself to us. You've revealed uh, the way that you see the world. And so we pray, Lord, that as we uh, look at this chapter in Daniel today, that you would help us to be shaped by it, uh, to have eyes of faith, um, to see things the way that you see things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we think about society and the church, I'm sure Daniel could sympathise with those, those thoughts that we might have. He lived in a time when God's people were not in their heyday. It was not the time of David. It was not the time of Solomon. Israel was certainly not a superpower in the world. Babylon, Egypt and Assyria, they were the superpowers in Daniel's time. They were the most powerful nations and the most powerful of those was Babylon. It ruled much of the ruled world and of, of the known world. And earlier in, in Daniel, um, actually before Daniel, Babylon had come to Jerusalem, laid siege to it, destroyed it and moved a portion of its population to Babylon. And that's where we find Daniel. In chapter 1, we see Daniel coming in to a foreign land, surrounded by the most powerful people on earth. God's people were scattered and defeated, and the society around Daniel looked thriving and dominating. Nothing could stand against it. And it's in this context that earlier in in chapter 2, we didn't read this part, but the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And this dream disturbs him greatly and he searches high and low for someone to tell him both the dream and the interpretation. His wise men can't do it. His magicians and astrologers can't do it. Nebuchadnezzar can't find anyone to tell him his dream and the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar is so angry that his wise men are so useless that he orders them all to be put to death. This is the sort of thing you can do, apparently, if you run a superpower. And so it's at this point, as a soldier rocks up to put Daniel to death, because he's one of the wise men as well, that Daniel does something quite remarkable. He decides to pray and ask God to reveal him the dream and the interpretation. And because it's kind of a critical issue at this point, he texts his mates to come over and get together for a quick prayer meeting. So, boy, would that tell Nebuchadnezzar, you know, would that show him what, what he's in for? On one hand, you have Donald Trump tweeting at 2am in the morning in his rage, and on the other, you have a few mates gathered in a corner praying. And God answers Daniel's prayer. God reveals the dream to Daniel and also reveals the interpretation. Amazingly, Daniel's first response is to praise God for what he's done, and then he rushes off to tell Nebuchadnezzar, his dream. And this morning we're going to look at that dream and we're just going to notice three things. The first is that the kingdoms of this world will look impressive. The kingdoms of this world will look impressive. Just imagine the statue that Nebuchadnezzar described. In verse 31, Daniel describes it. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue. An enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. Other translations say it's frightening. I said to the kids, imagine me as a statue. I, that's incorrect. 
Imagine a statue that's out, you know, above the roof of this building, huge, enormous, broad shoulders, glittering in the sun, frightening to all who look at it. I wonder what the most impressive sight you've seen is. Perhaps, perhaps it's the Sydney Harbour Bridge, as it stands towering over people who are walking on it or standing next to it. Perhaps you've been to Uluru, a marvel of creation, and it dwarfs you. It takes like an hour to walk around. It's just, it's just huge. It's imposing. And I think if you think of something imposing that you've seen, it's, it's something like what Daniel's describing. It's something like what this dream is conveying. But it's probably worse because he describes it as it's frightening. It's, it's huge. And the four kingdoms that are, being, uh, that are generally recognized as being in this dream are the Babylonians as the gold head, the Medes and Persians who came after them, the silver, the silver chest, the Greeks as the bronze thighs, and the Romans with the iron legs and the feet, uh, the iron feet and mixed with clay. And these were all devastatingly impressive nations who ruled the entire world at the time. Nothing these days that sort of compares to the power that these nations had. But there's a sense in which this dream applies to all nations because they're all one statue. It's not four separate statues. It's one statue. It's, it's an imposing picture of the nations of this world. Now, it's Reformation Day on, on Tuesday, the day that people say the Reformation started with Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg. So can you imagine what it must have been like for Luther, who lived in a day when the Roman Catholic Church ruled much of the world? It's, it's probably something like that. Rome must have seemed like this great statue that Nebuchadnezzar saw, dreadful and imposing. It must have seemed impossible to stand against by any human power. And for us today, we find that Nations perhaps don't look so imposing, but society does, and, and ideas and concepts that society push uh, seem very imposing to us. We see science hammering the Christian faith, telling us that there is no God, that God did not create us. When you go to work, it looks like everyone's bought into everything that society tells us. It feels like the gender fluidity, free sex, same-sex marriage, easy divorce, evolution, environmentalism, all of these things, pluralism, are believed by 90-plus percent of people, it seems, and it can feel very frightening. It can feel imposing. The Western secular kingdom that seems to be being built seems like this giant statue, imposing and big. The church, on the other hand can feel small, can feel like no one's with you. I know at my last job, I was in an office of about 100 people, and I knew of only two other Christians. So 95% of the people plus around me every day were unbelievers, and they all seemed to agree. They all thought that everyone was basically good. They all thought that truth was relative and it doesn't really matter what you believe. They were all quite happy to say so as well. It was imposing. It felt like Christianity was small and insignificant. But Nebuchadnezzar's dream shows us that this feeling we have is not unusual. We can take heart because God's people have been here before. 
the faithful Israelites struggled with exactly the same thing as they looked on at the superpower that Babylon was, coming and destroying Jerusalem. And even more encouraging for us is the next point that we see. As Daniel and his friends looked on at the superpower that Babylon was, and as we feel like the society around us is a superpower that carries everything along with it, the vision of Nebuchadnezzar reminds us that these feelings are only feelings. They're not reality. They're not reality at all because for Daniel, there was a sense in which the strength of the Babylonians, the Babylonians was a reality. The statue was still standing. But we live on the other side of the vision. We live on the other side of the dream. Daniel was looking forward, but we look back. We are living in a new kingdom. We are living in a new kingdom. You see, the second thing we look at this morning is that Jesus' kingdom has crushed all of these nations, all of these kingdoms. The statue is crushed. After Daniel explains about the vast and imposing statue, he turns our attention to a rock. And we notice what happens when the rock hits this great and mighty statue in verse 34 and 35. We read, While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. And the interpretation of this dream we read in verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself itself endure forever. The stone that will be, that will be cut by no human hand comes from God. It is not of human origin. And this stone comes and lands on the feet of the statue and crushes not one, but all of these kingdoms. It will break all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end. In Daniel, we see the stone that crushes the statue seems to be smaller than the statue. It's not a mountain that comes down and plonks itself on top of the statue. It's a rock that lands on the feet. Probably not very big. But it grows, and it grows into a ginormous mountain that fills the whole earth. And this rock that lands is Christ. This rock that lands is Christ and his kingdom that he's setting up when he comes. And that's the point of the parables that we read in Luke chapter 13. The kingdom of God starts small like a mustard seed. It starts very contained like some yeast that you might have in a container before putting it into the dough. But then it grows. And the end result is something amazing. The end result of the small mustard seed is a mustard tree, which compared to the seed is huge. It's big enough for birds to nest in. The end result of putting the small amount of yeast into a large amount of flour and water 
is that the dough becomes full of yeast. It grows and fills all of the dough. And notice, like I mentioned, the the tense of all of this. This is all in past tense. The kingdoms of this earth have been crushed by Christ already. It might not look that way. It might not feel that way to us, but they have. Christians are not people who live according to what we see or feel. We live by faith in the word of God. We live according to what God has told us. And here in Daniel, he's telling us that he has crushed the nations. When you go to work and feel that this secular kingdom around you is great and imposing, look at Daniel chapter 2 and live according to faith. The secular kingdom that you see is dust blowing away in the wind. It's been crushed already. And think of it not so much on the negative side of the kingdoms being crushed, but think of it on the positive side. This stone that crushed the kingdoms of this world is growing now into a huge mountain that will fill the earth. If we look back at Daniel compared to where we're living, we are in the period of mountain growth. We are in the spring after the mustard seed has sprouted. It's growing. Birds are starting to settle in its branches. The branches are reaching high in the sky, not yet fully grown, but it's certainly on its way there. The sourdough is rising. The yeast is beginning its work. You can actually see the dough expanding in size. You know, it could get bigger, but it's rapidly spreading. The yeast is rapidly spreading. You see, we live on the other side of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, and we must live by faith as we live in the great mountain kingdom of God that Jesus is building. But how does Jesus' kingdom grow bigger than all the other nations? How will it crush all these nations? Well, seeing as it's Reformation Week, we should quote Luther, who actually said this fairly well. He said, in short, I will preach the word, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, or while I drank Wittenberg beer, uh, Witten, Wittenberg beer, sorry, and while I drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Armsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. You see, it's not through military conquest, it's not through political techniques, it's not by excellent logic or eloquent speeches. God's kingdom doesn't fill the whole earth through well-run kids' clubs or by the right church strategy or by amazing leadership or by how dynamic our evangelism is. God's kingdom will grow and fill the whole earth through the power of his word as used by the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who uses the word of God to win people to this great kingdom. So what does that mean? Well, it means that we should be people of the word. 
We should be telling people what the Bible says. We should be more concerned with what we say than how we say it. And we should be showering all of and any of our efforts with prayer because it's God who's building this kingdom. It's a rock and a mountain not made by human hands. But know for sure that if you're in this kingdom, you're on the winning side. God's kingdom has crushed the kingdoms of this world and is growing to fill the whole earth. Which brings us to the last thing that we'll look at from Nebuchadnezzar's dream this morning, which is that Jesus' kingdom will last forever. Jesus' kingdom will last forever. In the dream itself, we only see the rock crushing the kingdoms of the world and growing into a great mountain. But in the interpretation that Daniel gives, he highlights something for us about this great mountain kingdom. In verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2, we read, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Did you catch the end of the verse? It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Each of the kingdoms in Nebuchadnezzar's dream would be crushed by another nation. The Medes and Persians came and crushed the Babylonians. The Greeks swept across the earth under Alexander and destroyed the Medes and Persians. And the Greeks themselves were taken out by the iron-strong nation of Rome, which came and broke and crushed all of the prior nations. So the uniqueness of this rock is not that it crushes nations. Other nations crush nations all the time. The uniqueness of God's kingdom is that it will also last forever. I was speaking with Joel the other day about how temporary we are. We go about our lives thinking we're important, thinking the things we do are important, but the reality is that for the vast majority of us, we will not be remembered 50 or 100 years after we die. I think Joel said, who knows the name of of their great-grandparents? I don't. And much of what we consider important is in the same category as us. It won't be remembered 50 or 100 years after we die. The money we earn will be spent by us or our kids on things that will be eaten, used up or thrown away. The work we pour our energy into will be changed or deleted by the next guy. The companies we work for will close down. The houses we clean will be knocked to the ground. The clothes we wash will wear out and be thrown in the bin. The food we cook will be eaten and forgotten. The plants we plant will be pulled up or die. The things we build will fall over. The cars we look after will be scrapped and melted down. The Facebook feeds we nurture will be forgotten within minutes of our friends scrolling past. The knowledge we amass will become harder for us to access as we age and eventually turn to dust as we decay in our graves. Now all of this would be incredibly depressing if it weren't for this one line in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It shall stand forever. You see, there is something that will last. 
There is one thing that will survive 50 years, 100 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, a million years, a trillion years after you die. There is something that will last forever. And the remarkable thing is that this one truth means that all of those things I mentioned can be done in a way that lasts. There are things you can do right now in your average everyday lives that will last forever. But what does this look like? How do we do it? How, how, does, how do I change a nappy in a way that lasts forever? There was a great Luther quote as well that talks about this, but it's a bit long, so I'm not going to use it. But we can look very quickly at Colossians chapter 3 to give us an idea of how to do this. Colossians chapter 3, 1 and 2 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. You see, when you're cleaning your house, where is your heart? Where is your mind? Why are you cleaning your house? What's your motivation? Are you cleaning because you associate your value with how clean your house is? Are you cleaning to show off a beautifully clean house to all your friends and be viewed highly by them? Or are you cleaning in order to be a good steward of the things God has given you? Are you cleaning for God? Or are you cleaning for you? Are you cleaning so that your house is more useful in the kingdom of God? Are you going to work so that you can earn tons of money and have all the things you want? Or are you going to work in order to build an empire? because you associate your value with how successful your business is or your department is? Are you going to work and working hard in order to simply seek the praise of your manager? Or, where is your heart? Where is your mind? Are you going to work in simple obedience to God to provide for your family and subdue and have dominion over the earth? Are you working for God or are you working for you? Are you going to work to seek the good of those around you? Are you seeking to do well at your job so that you can give God the glory? Are you seeking to reflect Christ at your workplace in the moment-by-moment decisions, discussions, choices, interactions that you have? Are you seeking any opportunity to speak truth into the lives of those around you at your workplace or to help your company do the right thing? Are we working for God or are we working for ourselves. It's about where our hearts are, where our minds are. And if we're wanting another example, then we need look no further than our text in Daniel chapter 2. You can follow with me if you wish, but I'll, if we look briefly through the earlier part of chapter 2, we see that the king, first of all, sorry, we see Daniel given unfair treatment at work. He rocks up to the office one day and has a really bad day because the head of another department comes in and tells Daniel that, and all his team that their job is to die today. The general manager decided so last night. And we watch Daniel deal with this disappointing day at the office 
as one who knows he belongs to a different kingdom, as one who has his heart and his mind set on things above. He answers with wisdom and grace to this other department head in verse 15 and says, why is the decision from the general manager so harsh? He responds with faith, seeking the good of the company and his team, seeking to change the general manager's decision because he knows it's not right. In verse 16, he asks the general manager to spare him some time later on. And then he acts on his understanding that all wisdom comes from God. In his secular job, he gathers up what Christian friends he has around him and he goes and prays. He has a lunchtime prayer meeting. Then he listens to God and remarkably, before fixing the problem that his general manager has, he yet again puts God first and praises him in verse 20 and 23 for the wisdom that God gives. He then publicly recognises God before the general manager in verses 28. He says, with all due respect, sir, your problem can't be solved with the intelligence of man, but God has helped me and God has given me wisdom and he's shown me the answer you're looking for. He publicly declares, even to his boss's boss's boss, the work of God in his life. And then he speaks truth, even when it involves his general manager being told that he isn't the most important thing in the world and actually he's going to be crushed one day. You see, Daniel is a great example of living for God's kingdom rather than for the kingdom of this world. So much so, it, it makes me uneasy just reading it, how radical he was in his approach. In his secular workplace, how, how much he was putting God first, how much he was working for God's kingdom. So the question that we need to ask in light of the foreverness of God's kingdom is, as we go about our mundane lives tomorrow, is our heart in it for the glory of God? Or is our heart in it for our glory? Are we living for the kingdom that will never fade, the forever mountain kingdom of Jesus, or are we living for our own kingdom? If you're not a part of this mountain kingdom, if you're still a part of the kingdom of this world, then I invite you, come and join. Come and join the great mountain kingdom. It's a wonderful kingdom, and it's the only kingdom that will last forever. And if you are already trusting in Jesus, if you're already part of his kingdom, built without the hands of men, then I encourage you, don't be intimidated by outward appearances of the kingdoms of the world. Don't be sucked into thinking that the kingdoms around you are strong and mighty. They might look that way, but it's not the reality. See with eyes of faith the kingdom that God has brought and how it's turned these kingdoms of the world to dust. See with eyes of faith that the kingdoms of the world, the things that look so imposing to us, are dust blowing away in the wind. See with eyes of faith a great mountain, a great mountain that's filling the earth, and come and rest in it. And come and be broken on the solid rock that is Christ, rest on his saving work and work for his kingdom. Work hard for the furtherance of this kingdom. Come and serve the kingdom because it's the only thing that will last forever. In our day-to-day -day lives, I encourage you to stand on Christ our rock 
to have our hearts and minds set on him and, and serving him because it's in this kingdom that, that, we will, uh, that, that it will last forever. It's this kingdom that will not be moved. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we, we do feel uh, that the things around us, the, the things of this world are uh, imposing and scary. Lord, they seem big and they seem sturdy. But Lord, we pray that we would see with eyes of faith that the work that Christ has done in setting up a kingdom on this earth has crushed all those, all those nations, all those kingdoms around us. Help us to see that they are but dust, that they're blowing away, and one day we will see them no more. And Lord, help us to work in the kingdom that you have made. Help us to have our hearts and minds set on you. Uh, help us to work for your glory, even in our mundane lives, uh, of, in day to day. Because, Lord, we know that when we're working for you, um, the things that we do will last forever. When we're working for you, Lord, your your glory, uh, it will last forever. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be serving you and working for your glory uh, throughout this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.